Back in Black is the apex of heavy metal art. The first album since Led Zeppelin II that captured all the blood, sweat, and arrogance of the genre. That's what David Fricke said in his review of Back in Black for Rolling Stone magazine in 1980. This is Music Notes and More with your host, Jason Ginty. Back in Black was an unprecedented success. It has sold an estimated 50 million copies worldwide, and it's one of the best-selling albums in music history. And it was released 40 years ago. Back in Black is the seventh studio album produced by ACDC, and it was released on July 25th, 1980, and the band's first album to feature vocalist Brian Johnson, following the death of the previous vocalist Bon Scott. Today, we'll look back and celebrate the 40th anniversary of the album's release by going into the background and the making of the album and why it's still a classic today. After the commercial breakthrough of their 1979 album, Highway to Hell, ACDC was planning to record a follow-up. Now, most of the music was written, and Bon Scott had several lyrical ideas for the album. The group were on the final tour dates, and they had planned to begin recording a follow-up shortly after the tour was over. On February 19, 1980, Bon Scott went on a drinking binge in a London pub that caused him to lose consciousness, so a friend let him rest in the back of his car overnight. The next morning, Scott was found unresponsive and rushed to King's College Hospital, where medical personnel pronounced him dead on arrival. The coroner ruled that pulmonary aspiration of vomit was the cause of Scott's death, but the official cause was listed on the death certificate as acute alcoholic poisoning and classified as death by misadventure. Scott was cremated and his ashes were interred by his family in Australia. The loss obviously devastated the rest of his bandmates, who considered breaking up. However, friends and family and Bon Scott's parents persuaded the members of ACDC to carry on. After Bon Scott's funeral, the band immediately began auditions for replacement frontman. Brian Johnson, he was actually in a studio and recording the most metal jingle of all time for Hoover Vacuums. Yes, Hoover Vacuums. He made about 700 bucks on the deal. Now, when he was finished, he then walked across the street to Vanilla Studios where ACDC was holding their auditions. As Johnson recalls, he opened the door to the studio where Angus, Malcolm, Phil Rudd, and Cliff Williams were jamming, and he announces himself as Brian from Newcastle. Malcolm brought the weary Johnson a bottle of beer, which he immediately sucked down to get into the mood. He sang a few songs with the band, and Johnson was offered the dream gig a few days later. The band recorded the album Back in Black at Compass Point Studios in Nassau in the Bahamas with producer Mutt Lang. Brian Johnson recalled that, quote, It was hardly any kind of studio. We were in these little concrete cells, comfy, mind you. You had a bed and a chair. And there was this big old black lady that ran the whole place. And she was fearsome. She ruled that place with a rod of iron. He says we had to lock the doors at night because she warned us about people would come down at night and rob the place. So she bought us all the six-foot fishing spears to keep at the door. ACDC entered the studio with Mutt Lang. Now, Mutt Lang, of course, is renowned for his painstaking approach to recording, most memorably in his recordings with Def Leppard. 
It took them years to complete Pyromania and the Hysteria albums. Lane's production, though, for the album had an enduring impact in the music industry. To this day, producers still use it as the de facto paint-by-numbers guidebook for how a hard rock record should sound. In the years after its release, studios in Nashville would use it to check the acoustics of a room. Even Motorhead would use it to tune their sound system. According to Angus Young, the album's all-black cover was a sign of mourning for Scott. For us, it was the memory of Bong, you know, and we didn't want you know, we didn't want to put on the the album, you know, yeah. in memoriam, just some cheap little line at the bottom of a thing, you know. The album's all-black cover was a bit of a problem for their record label, Atlantic Records. They disagreed with the cover, but accepted it if the band put a gray outline around the ACDC logo, which they ended up doing. The recording process for the Back in Black album in the Bahamas was wrought with all kinds of very interesting challenges. There were numerous tropical storms. There were power outages. Thunderstorms would roll in all the time, and they would have to hurry up the recording process so they didn't get thunder in all the background of their songs. One time, a giant crab actually was clicking and crawling across the studio while they were trying to record, and they got all these clicking sounds in a track that they had to scrap and start over again. And after just a couple of months, the album was complete, and it became a classic. Whether you bought the album in 1980 or just a couple of weeks ago, you know the first track is Hell's Bells. And it starts off with the bell tolling four times before the guitar riff comes in. The bell rings another nine times, gradually fading out. Now, when played live, Brian Johnson is the guy hitting the bell in concert. Hell's Bells was actually a tribute to Bon Scott. But you don't honor Bon Scott's memory with a bell from a sound effects library. So the band needed a real bell and a big one. So the first attempt to record the bell took place in England at a museum. The bell sounded lame, so the band thought, well, let's have one built. So they commissioned a one-ton bronze bell from a local foundry that they would also eventually use on stage in concert. Now, the bell, unfortunately, wasn't ready in time for recording. However the manufacturer arranged for them to record a similar bell at a nearby church. Now, according to an engineer, that didn't go well either, as there were birds living in the bell. So every time they rang the bell, you also got the recording of fluttering of birds' wings and birds chirping and squawking. The birds would immediately retreat back inside the bell after the toll, so they couldn't use that one. So what they finally ended up doing was they decided to use the bell that was in production. So they borrowed a mobile recording unit and wheeled it to the foundry. The bell was hung on a block and struck by the guy who built the damn thing. Once it was on tape, they sent the recordings from England to Electric Ladyland Studios in New York, where producer Mutt Lang chose the right combination of bell sounds, put a mix together, and then slowed it down to half speed so the one-ton bell would sound like a more ominous two-ton bell. This was integrated into the mix of the song, and then the song was finally completed. 
Now, if you've seen ACDC in concert and you got some pretty good ears, you'll notice that the bell, when chimed live, is an octave higher than it is on the recording. Four years after Hell's Bells was released, Metallica released the song For Whom the Bell Tolls, which also opens with a bell. Theirs came from a sound effects library. Shoot the Thrill wasn't released as a single, and there was no video made for it, but many radio stations ended up playing it anyway because, well, it's awesome. If you remember the movie Iron Man 2, when Tony Stark made a grand entrance, well, that song was used in the 2010 movie. Scenes from the film were actually combined with ACDC concert footage to make a video for the song that was released before the movie hit theaters, serving as a preview of sorts. The Iron Man 2 soundtrack was comprised entirely of ACDC songs with Shoot to Thrill and Highway to Hell appearing in the movie. The third song is called What Do You Do for Money, Honey? This song finds Brian Johnson taunting a woman who avoids work by hooking up with rich men. It was largely ignored by the band uh, live in concert after the mid-1980s, although it was revived during their 2001 tour. The next song on the album is called Giving the Dog a Bone. It's probably not about an animal welfare campaign promoting canine dental health. I'm pretty sure it's about a tongue-in-cheek set of lyrics about getting oral pleasure from a not-so-good-looking woman. Look, ACDC keep it pretty simple with their songs. They're usually about fast cars, fast women, and rocking out. Let Me Put My Love Into You was the title of the next song, and yeah, I'm detecting a theme here. It proved, of course, that new lead singer Brian Johnson could pen a dirty lyric just as well as Bon Scott. It probably wouldn't work so well if it was released today in the Me Too era, but these guys, they made a living writing songs about screwing, and apparently they must have been pretty lonely while they were recording the album in the Bahamas. Now, in 1985, the Parents Music Resource Center, the PMRC, proposed a rating system for albums with lyrics dealing with violence, sex, drugs, alcohol, or the occult. Now, any number of ACDC songs could have fit at least some of these criteria, but they chose this one for their list of the filthy 15 songs they found most reprehensible. Now, you might remember this fight on Capitol Hill when Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister, Frank Zappa, and John Denver appeared before the committee. Now, the PMRC wasn't granted their wish of content-specific ratings, but they did get warning stickers placed on albums with explicit content. And let me put my love into you, certainly fell into those categories. ACDC, whose fans are well aware of their lyrical content, got a nice boost from the proceedings, and the stickers actually helped to sell more ACDC albums. The song Back in Black is a tribute to Scott, and the lyrics, Forget the hearse, cause I never die, imply that he will live on forever through his music. The band got the idea for the title before writing any of the song, although Malcolm Young had the main guitar riff for years and used to play it frequently as a warm-up tune. After Bon Scott's death, Angus Young decided that their first album without him should be called Back in Black in Tribute. So they wrote the song around that phrase. Kurt Cobain of Nirvana was actually given his first guitar for his 14th birthday. And Back in Black was the first song that he learned to play. That brings us to You Shook Me All Night Long. A classic, obviously. 
at weddings, at parties, and around the world. Anytime white people need to dance and rock out, this song gets played. Well, Brian Johnson came up with the line, she was a fast machine, she kept her motor clean, when he realized that cars and women were very much alike. They go fast, they let you down, but then they make you happy again when you see the new model. ACDC has never been known for deep, meaningful lyrics. Now, some copies of the original single were pressed incorrectly. They play a song called Shake a Leg and are considered collector's items. Now, this is a very popular song. It's strip clubs. At least I've been told this. Anyway, the lyrics and groove go very well with the pole dancing. Brian Johnson told USA Today one time that this song is for him the highlight of the band's catalog because, quote, it was the first song I wrote with the guys and it has a special groovy beat that won't let you go. It has such a special place in my heart and I still love to sing it on stage. He says to me, it might be one of the best rock songs ever written, if I do say so myself. The song Have a Drink on Me, well, this song is about a guy trying to buy his buddy a drink. Now, this might seem a little in poor taste, considering that their former lead singer, Bon Scott, drank himself to death just months before the album was released. His replacement, Brian Johnson, stayed true to Scott's form by writing about topics consistent with ACDC's songs that they've had throughout their career, and that includes drinking. Many bands would have released a heartfelt ballad to honor a fallen member, but that's not the way ACDC does things. Bond would have wanted them to rock out, and that's exactly what they kept doing. Shake a Leg I like to consider Back in Black's forgotten classic. Look, this song is pretty much one of the toughest, meanest, outright devastating tunes ACDC has ever recorded. It's got the pulverizing power and fast-paced tempo, and if that doesn't get you... Then the lyrics about a juvenile delinquent fighting on the wrong side of law, yeah, that's going to get you. Shake a Leg is a badass tune. And then the album finishes off with Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution. Now initially, only nine tracks were written for the Back in Black album, but Atlantic Records, the band's record label, as well as their management recommended that they should write one more song. Angus and Malcolm wrote Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution in about 15 minutes. Yeah. Now, 12 seconds into the song, you can hear the click of a lighter and then someone taking a pull off a cigarette. That was Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson also claims that the spoken word intro was improvised. You know, the part where it goes, hey, all you middlemen and good sense and all that. Yeah, he just made that up on the spot in the studio. And he didn't figure that was going to make the cut. And it did. ACDC's Back in Black album can be interpreted as a tribute to Bon Scott or even a giant F.U. to all the critics and all the others who had no respect for the band and thought they would fall through because of Bon Scott's death. Now, whatever it was meant to be, Back in Black is one of the most successful albums of all time. ACDC is championing rock and roll music in the songs, which are something they did consistently throughout their career steadfastly refusing to alter their style or cross genres. In 1980, rock needed a champion. Led Zeppelin had disbanded, and mainstays like Black Sabbath, The Stones, Rainbow, and Kiss were either out of the game or dabbling in a bunch of slow, drippy ballads, or even worse, disco. Hello, Kiss. 
The Back in Black album was the album that saved ACDC's career. Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash even went so far as to say it saved rock and roll. Not only is it the greatest comeback album of all time, it's also arguably the greatest rock album ever made. And that's being said by Slash, who was part of Appetite for Destruction. Right. The whole point of the album was to celebrate Bon Scott's life, says Brian Johnson. The boys had lost a great friend and a great singer and a pal. They'd gone through all their stuff together. He wasn't just a singer in the band. He was their best friend. Forty years later, Back in Black is the biggest selling rock album of all time with worldwide sales now at a staggering 55 million. Its success is all the more amazing, given the circumstances in which it was made. But as the late Malcolm Young said, quote, We meant it. It's real. It's coming from within and was made from what we'd all gone through. That emotion on that record, that will be around forever. This special edition of Music Notes and More is written, produced, and hacked together by me, Jason Ginty, and is brought to you by Pirates of the Quarter Tours, the most unique walking tour of the French Quarter in New Orleans. Get the details at piratesofthequarter.com, and be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and check out my YouTube channel.